I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm David Byrne, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. And welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with English champion David Byrne about bridge and life and crossing the fourth wall into media consulting, particularly on the television program Killing Eve. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, partner. How are you, Catherine? I'm terrific. Thanks, Jocelyn. How are you doing? I'm fine. You know how a lot of our guests, as well as our letter writers, really focus on hands where the bidding has gone awry, but the end result is great? Yeah. Like better than it would have been? Those kinds of hands really stick in people's memory, Mm. you know, something Mm. that really went off the rails and by all accounts should have been a complete disaster. But due to, I don't know, forces beyond our control, it all works out for the best. And um, it's kind of weird when that happens. Yeah. (laughs) It happened to me. It (laughs) happened to me just last night. Well, share, share with me what happened, Jocelyn? Well, I had a great hand. I had 18 points. I had a long spade suit. I I didn't know whether to open two clubs. So I decided to open it one spade and hope I don't get passed out. Mm -hmm. My partner responds with a no trump. And the way we play, two clubs by me is a forcing bid after. Okay. She can't pass. She passed. And I was just devastated. I don't remember how many clubs I had, but not many. I had a long spade suit. I'm looking 
to think that there could be a slam here. I'm certainly not interested in stopping below game. And as it turned out, she had a very long club suit. Yeah. She didn't want to pass one spade, but she had very, very little in the way of points. And two clubs was the best place for us. Wow. And we got a good board. Hey. You know, and I'm sitting there with steam coming out of my ears when she <laughs> passed. And now I have to play it. I had maybe had one club in my hand, maybe a void. And I never imagined that she would pass. And she yeah. passed. Huh. And I made a forcing bid. And I mean, it's just, it was just weird. And so I guess the goal is, uh, is to win the postmortem. She won. But, you know, our agreement is that two clubs in that seat is forcing. So. I don't think she won, Jocelyn. I think that you would have been in your rights to insist. <laughs> really? You should have been. <laughs> so what if we end up in four spades and going down? <laughs> but I guess, it, you know, it's that issue of I would rather you bid our system and occasionally it backfires than have partner improvise because she doesn't know your hand. And, you know, you may have missed out on something incredible. Right. Right. I mean, it was good luck. It was very good luck. I couldn't believe it because I thought, oh, everyone else is going to be in game at least. Yeah. If not, slam. Yeah. And game doesn't even make. Hi, I'm Peter from Hillsboro, New Jersey, and I'm a listener and supporter of Sorry Partner. I just love the interviews. I love hearing the world's best players discuss their personal side, and I especially love the portion which they talk about the conventions that they like and dislike. I think it was Joe Grew and also uh, Mitch Dunnett's like mixed raises instead of preemptive raises, which I thought was very interesting. The uh, discussion about optional Blackwood was fascinating. So, I mean, I'm uh, very into conventions, have been playing for a long time, but I've still learned an incredible amount from those interviews. I think you should support the show because it's just a fascinating take on the game of bridge. You hear a lot of perspectives that you don't hear anyplace else. Um, and I think it can generate a lot of enthusiasm and bring new people into the game. It's easy to support the show. You just go to the website, which is sorrypartner.com, and click on the Support the Show tab. And I hope everybody will join me in doing that. And we're back. So unsurprisingly, we have had a number of letters related to this theme, Jocelyn. Oh, these memorable hands where things work out, notwithstanding a major snafu. <laughs> yeah, so the first one I'll share with you is from John in Boston. And he writes, I had a nice hand, 15 high card points with five spades to the king, queen, jack, five, clubs to the ace, king, five, five, come alive, he says, and a diamond void. My partner had 12 high card points with seven diamonds to the ace, king, queen, and a singleton, 10 of spades. Misfit. Mm. Mm. I was south and the bidding went one spade, two heart overcall, three diamonds by partner, pass. Oh, dear, he says, how did we get to the three level already? <laughs> Ooh. Four clubs by him, pass. Five hearts by his partner, pass. And then he writes, what the cats is five hearts, question mark, exclamation point, question mark. 
<laughs> I can't stay in five hearts. My partner clearly didn't like spades, but I would be at the sixth level if I bid either clubs or diamonds. And so I bid five spades and everyone passed. When partner tabled her cards, she stated that she thought that my four club bid was Gerber and our opponents quickly explained that it could not have been Gerber. (laughs) I kept my mouth shut. I'm sure they were all too, all too eager to explain. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) No, that's not Gerber. (laughs) And I'm sure he was very happy to sit there and let them make that point. I did not realize until the next day that she could have bid four hearts instead of five hearts. Then he sweetly writes, we are not as good as you, but we are normally not this terrible, honestly. (laughs) We went down two and I was certain we'd secured a zero. It turned out that no one made their contract and we tied for top. Both three no trump and five diamonds went down two, sometimes down three. We were, however, the only pair to play in spades. (laughs) There must be a lesson in here somewhere. Love your show, John. That That's great. I, I think these sorts of stories are very entertaining. They're very memorable when they happen to you. And then they're fun to hear about. They most definitely are. Of course, when I think about it, there have been times when I splintered and my partner left me there. And that did not go well. And so there have been times when a terrible snafu has not had such a wonderful result. Yes. And we've probably all had that, but we try not to dwell on those, maybe. (laughs) The others are more fun. (laughs) Much more fun. Our next letter on the theme of bidding disasters is from Russ. Russ writes, in the 499 game, my partner opened one spade. I had no spades. Queen five of hearts. Ace king jack eight seven six five three in diamonds. And the ten seven three in clubs. I started to bid four diamonds, showing a very long diamond suit and six plus points, brackets, mistakes number one and number two. (laughs) (laughs) Then I remembered this would be a splinter bid showing four spades and a void in diamonds. I was so proud to remember that. So I bid three diamonds instead, forgetting Bergen, which my partner would read as four spades and invitational values, mistakes three and four. So of course my (laughs) partner bid four spades. I immediately realized my error and bid five diamonds, mistake number five. (laughs) But I couldn't leave us in spades, hoping my partner would recognize that I wasn't making a control bid and thinking of slam. My partner, knowing what must have happened, wisely passed. She had queen X in diamonds and we made six for a 78% board. Love, love, love the show. Best, Russ. Wow, Russ, that is amazing. I think you might have been lucky that no one called the director after all those deviations from your bidding agreements, but we've all been there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And then we have one more story, Jocelyn. This one is called Pickup Partner, and it's from Gary. Gary writes, I was listening to your great podcast, and you asked for stories about playing with new partners. I went to a regional by myself and met someone at the partnership desk. Something I enjoy doing, though obviously haven't had as much chance to do that lately. We were playing the open pairs, something that I was new to. And a few rounds in, we were playing against an expert pair. I got a little flustered and misinterpreted and misexplained my partner's two-no trump bid as invitational and passed when it should have been forcing and we should have been in three-no trump. Partner gave the correct explanation and I put the dummy down with a comment like, 
well, maybe there will only be eight tricks after all. Partner did take exactly eight tricks because he revoked during the play. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to sink through the floor after all of that. I've had a lot of fun and quite a bit of success playing with pickup partners over the years. This was one of the few times that it didn't work out. And if he's listening, I'll take all the blame, Gary. (laughs) Oh, gosh, Gary. That's cute. That's cute. I haven't done that many pickup partners. Have you? No, 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 I haven't. I can see it's fun. I can see it's fun. I'm honestly a little leery about it, though, because, you know. Well, I like to have a system. I I think that's really important. So I feel uncomfortable. I did do it once. Yeah. And I got an incredible partner. He was such a good card player. He was amazing. Yeah. So we didn't really have much in the way of agreements. Right. And that was just fine. Yeah. And then, you know, he played. I remember he didn't like my leading Trump. (laughs) He's like, you're not supposed to lead Trump. I'm like, okay. But he, he played great. Yeah. Well, it's fun too. Obviously, when you travel, you're often in a situation where you you um, yeah. get a pickup partner and it's nice because some of the usual rules don't apply. Like, you know, you don't have a system, so people are a little more relaxed. You know, you learn about people. It's fun. Yeah. So if you have any good stories about our favorite topic, bidding mishaps that work out for the best, or fun stories about a pickup partner at a tournament or when you were traveling, please do send them in to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or via Instagram, sorrypartnerpodcast, or you can leave us a voice message. And all the links are in the show notes and on the website, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with David Byrne. English champion David Byrne is a bridge player and journalist whose credits include ghostwriting for Zia and consulting on the multi-award winning television drama Killing Eve, helping to bring a bridge club to life on the small screen. He has played for England in seven Camrose matches, a European championship, and one World Olympiad. He coached Britain to the Bermuda Bowl silver medal in 1987 and to victory in the European Championships in 1991. More recently, he has coached the highly successful England women's team, who have picked up numerous medals, including victory in the 2016 European Championships and silver medals in the 2013 and 2017 Venice Cups. And he aided the senior team in their victory in the 2014 European Championships. We began by asking if he'd had any interesting hands lately. There was one where I had seven six in the majors and never bid. What? <laughs> well, that, well, I didn't. I didn't know what to do for the best. I had something like jack nine eight seventh king nine sixth, void and void, obviously. And it went one diamond on the left, pass from my partner, two diamonds, which was forcing on the right. It was game all, and it was team scoring, and I couldn't really think of what I wanted to do. I mean, I could be. Three diamonds to show both majors, I suppose. But the trouble with doing that is when you've got like seven six and partners two two, they always bid their two guard lower suit. And I didn't want to play hearts, not spades. I could try and set the cat among the pigeons by bidding four spades or or hoping that partner would have some fit. But when you've got both these minor suit voids and the auctions 
starts like that, it doesn't fill you with confidence that there's going to be a particularly big fit because somebody must have clubs and uh, it doesn't sound like the opponents, at least not yet. So Bartlett's probably got a lot of those. Besides, you know, I had a four count and, and uh, <laughs> if Bartlett didn't have a fit and, and when I did four spades, they'd just have to double me and, and um, you know, opposite two, two in the majors, <laughs> that could go for an absolute burden. And all the time Bartlett's sitting there with enough defense to beat, um, and if they play three, no Trump, I might take a, have a rethink and chip in with four diamonds at that point. But I thought I'd sit, sit back, see what happened. And I went two diamonds, so I passed. And the next fellow bid three clubs and Bartlett doubled it. And I thought, oh, that's where the clubs are. He's got some of them and Bartlett's got the rest of them. <laughs> but at least Bartlett's got some points, which is kind of encouraging. And the next one bid three diamonds. So I've passed again because I still didn't know what was happening. And it went three spades on the left, plus four hearts on the right. So I thought, okay, I can double that. I did say I never bid. I did double. Double isn't a bid, of course. So I doubled that. <laughs> And um, <laughs> five diamonds and, and, and signed off after much sighing and huffing and puffing and blowing. And I still wasn't sure whether I'd done the right thing or not. But as it happened, I had done the right thing because by pursuing this policy of masterly inactivity, I'd created a situation where I could double four hearts so that Parker could lead a heart from his doubleton, which was the only lead to beat five diamonds. Hey, well done. So that was good, <laughs> except that. I'll deal with table they played five diamonds and my hand had done some bidding, so my partners had doubled it and didn't lead a heart, so it made. But my partner did lead a heart, so it was set to go off. Uh, except when he got in with something, I think it was the ace of trumps, he didn't lead another one, even though he had one. And had been declaring managed to throw a heart loser away from his hand at some point in proceedings. And so it made anyway, so we only won four imps. But it was an exciting board all round, even though I didn't take much part in it because there didn't seem to be a convenient moment at which I, I could. I just can't believe there was a 7-6 hand and you were able to restrain yourself from bidding. Yeah, I mean, I, I just couldn't. I, I didn't know what the appropriate thing thing was. Crazy. I couldn't think about it for too long. That's the, the, the thing, even online. You know, you can't sit there and steer and study and then pass because, A, that gives away some stuff to the opponents and, B, it sort of hamstrings your partner if he wants to chime in. So you've kind of got to do these things in tempo, even if it's online bridge, so nobody knows you've got some big problem or other. True, true. Was there any discussion at the table after that hand? <laughs> my left-handed opponent, uh, when he saw my hand, it's like, you, you have what? Capital letters, exclamation mark, question mark, asterisk, asterisk, and so <laughs> But no, it was it was not. Um, I mean, it was on um, BBSO conversation. It was only via chat, and I said, "Well, I had four points, and that seemed to be enough information." <laughs> That's great. I once had a seven-six, but it didn't have four points, and there was no stopping me. I think I was playing with my <laughs> lovely, my lovely partner, Catherine, um, when that happened. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah so I'm not sure what the odds against seven-six are, but the, the lots to one. Of course, they had it at the other table as well, so. The, doesn't count so much. Yeah, right, so right. They did rather more bidding at the other table and the auction got accelerated a bit and something like one diamond, one no trump, two no trump or something in my hand bid and the next one jumped to five diamonds and got doubled and, and they didn't lead arts, so it made. So how did you learn to play bridge? Uh, well, my mother played. My father didn't, but... My mother would, uh, her parents both played. So when, when my grandparents came to visit, 
you know, Muller would, would find a fourth player to play. So I knew about the game from a fairly early age, although I was actually born and brought up in Africa while my grandparents lived in England. So they didn't come very often when they did. There would always be some fourth player raked in from somewhere and there'd be a bridge game going on. So I, I heard about the game and I read a book about the game. It didn't make a lot of sense to me because I, I didn't actually play myself. But I knew bridge existed from fairly early childhood. But it wasn't until we came back to England and I went to a uh, secondary school. And uh, so I was about 13. And uh, at the school, uh, there was a teacher who had played international bridge. He was an England international. He taught maths. Um, his name was Steve, Steve Burton. And he had a little bridge club going. I mean, he had some boys in the, in this, uh, you know, older than me. And there was a game of bridge going and he, and he taught the game and he asked if, you know, anybody knew how to play. And I said, well, I know about the game. I don't know how to play. He said, oh, look, okay, come along to the club and, uh, have a look, see if you can, uh, think you can join in. So that was my first experience of playing bridge. And I had a couple of books that my mother had bought. And so I was able to read books, Bridge by Terence Reese. The first one was. Anyway, so I had a couple of books and I had a mother I could ask some questions and I had a teacher who was, who was keen to get the school kids to play. So that was how I started and uh, never really looked back, I guess. So that was the math teacher at your school? Yeah, yeah, he taught maths. He didn't teach me a lot of maths. I wasn't in his class, but as I say, he just ran this, this little bridge club. There were two or three tables most, most lunchtimes, Wednesday lunchtimes it was. So it was a good introduction. When we spoke to Barry Regal, he talked about playing in high school and being a member of a club with a math group. Any right. chance it was the same school that uh, you No, no, Barry and, I, Barry and I have known each other for a long, long time, but uh, we weren't at school together. We weren't at university together either. I, unlike Barry, had the benefit of a university education because I went to Cambridge, whereas he went to Oxford. <laughs> oh. That was a burn by David Byrne. <laughs> but we did play against each other in the varsity match. The varsity is a, a name that uh, for some reason gets given to pretentious universities in England. And the varsity match, Oxford and Cambridge, have rivalries in just about every sport. I mean, the boat race, I guess, is the most famous, but they play rugby against each other, cricket against each other, chess against each other, tennis against bridge against each other. So Barry and I were on opposite sides in a varsity match. Things were kind of cyclic. Just before I went up to University Oxford, um, had a pretty strong team with a pretty strong bunch of players, and they, they tended to win. But by the time I got there, the stronger players were on the Cambridge side, and it was generally reckoned that um, a win by less than three figures counted officially as a loss. <laughs> and I think we won the first varsity match I played in by two using that scale. So yes, I do remember encountering Barry for the first time at uh, this varsity match that we played. So yes, so so um, the, the thing you get for playing for your university is called a blue. So you can say things like, I got a blue at Cambridge and I would have got the pink as well, but it was behind the black. But <laughs> uh, you only got half blues for bridge. It didn't count as a real sport. So you only had played twice to have qualified, actually, to have played for Cambridge. But, but uh, oh. that was what we did. So your mother played, but your father didn't. Is there a reason why your father didn't play bridge? He, I think, would actually have been fairly good at it. 
he played uh, he played some games. He taught me chess very unsuccessfully. I was never much of a chess player, but he didn't take a lot of interest in card games. He played cricket. He played tennis pretty well, but I don't think card games uh, appealed very much to him. And certainly he may well have realized the wisdom of, of not playing with the wife if you want to maintain a happy marriage. You've had a bridge career that has spanned both playing and journalism. How did you start writing about bridge? Oh, right. Well, uh, the University Bridge Club at Cambridge had a, a newsletter, which it published once a term, the three terms in the academic year. And uh, I wrote my first pieces for that newsletter and people seemed to like them so so i wrote a few more that appeared in magazines and so on and i guess it just gradually uh was something that i did in addition to playing the game i wrote purely for my own uh entertainment if you like um and other people so it wasn't ever a sort of professional thing until zia mahmoud uh, whom you may have heard um, inherited the Guardian, the Manchester Guardian, as it's called, a newspaper in England, one of the major lefty tabloids, took over the bridge column from Rixie Marcus, who'd sadly died, and um, asked me to help him write it, which we not help him write it, but I mean, he would jot down a hand and some ideas and so forth, and, and I would edit it to take out all the champagne and the sex and the violence because it was, <laughs> it was the Guardian, not the Tantler. The fact that I don't think Zero would quite appreciate it. And I I would deal with the newspaper, because obviously he was travelling around all over the world and the thing. It it was a weekly column. It wasn't a daily column, as there are in the Times and the Telegraph now. But the Guardian stopped reporting Bridge altogether. The the editor, Alan Rusbridge, wasn't keen on games and puzzles. They were not sufficiently serious activities. What's the key ingredient to making a Bridge column really appealing? So... There are various different kinds you can write. I mean, you can write report of one particular hand. Bridge columns in newspapers, as I'm sure you know, are short. You've got like 800 words to tell a story of a bridge hand or whatever. You can't cram an awful lot of instruction into 800 words. So most of the articles that we wrote in The Guardian were about exciting hands that had happened, particularly if a world championship had just happened, there was a big wealth of hands and there would always be some close finish to some match or other that you could write about and pretend that this end was the critical end. But there wasn't too much license uh, with with the actual facts. But the point is that because it's just one deal, there's only so much you can say about it because of space constraints. I mean, there are some deals that you go into an enormous debt. But so as long as it's, it's got a context and it's got something that's either entertaining, which is best, or actually vaguely instructive which is which is also fine if it's both then that's great or if you can make it both then that's, that's great if a story goes with it if it happened at rubber bridge playing for thousands of pounds a hundred you know so this guy got to do the right thing or his, his children are going to starve and he's going to have to sell the family silver then they, that's that's obviously great you've got the story there with the with the deal but succinctness is extremely important I mean, Bridge is always throwing up good stories. There's there's never a session of Bridge goes by without some hand in it that you can turn into an article. The more famous the hand is, if there's some personalities involved, Sharif, of course, got lots of hands that you could write about him and, and other Bridge players, so newsworthy people who, who play a bit of Bridge. Bridge, it, it, it tells its own story. You just have to not 
labor anything and mangle the words. I mean, bad bridge writing just plods a lot, whereas a, a, a decent column, you've hardly started reading it before you finished reading it. It's a, a little story, a little sort of vignette and more exciting detail you can put in it. About. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Have you ever had any... Interesting feedback to some of your columns that you can share with us. Well, again, uh, because officially they weren't my columns, the ones that appeared in the Guardian at any rate, the ones that appeared in magazines and so forth. Yeah, you get letters to the, the magazines. We were surprised when we were told that after 20 years they were going to axe the column at the amount of feedback that we suddenly got. People started writing to the editor and, and, and the publishers of the Guardian demanding that, that we didn't do this. I mean, same for the chess column, you know, that people did actually like the weekly columns, uh, which was gratifying in a way because it meant, you know, we've been doing a good job keeping them entertained. I mean, from a newspaper, you don't get an awful lot of technical queries because, as I've just been saying, your articles aren't really technical. They're just a story. And as long as you don't commit some awful mess then you know hopefully people can follow it you haven't had like a little miss marples who always writes to you <laughs> complaining <laughs> no no we we didn't used to get uh disgusted of tunbridge wells writing in the <laughs> bridge column even the bits that i'd forgotten to take out all the sex and violence and champagne uh <laughs> we didn't get a lot of a lot of outraged Guardian readers writing in about this and, and saying it was a betrayal of socialist principles or whatever. <laughs> so, and because the thing was sort of weekly, if you did get anything, then it was hard to put it right. Because, I mean, you write something with Colin McCann on Saturday, somebody would read it and write a letter. But by the time we got to next Saturday, of course, everybody had forgotten all about it. And you only had 800 words anyway, so you didn't want to put 300 of them answering some technical point about the percentage play in a suit. Usually the people who write in are sort of wrong about that kind of thing anyway. So we didn't, there wasn't a great deal of back and forth. I mean, these days, obviously, it's all online and you have comment sections and people reply to comment sections and so forth. But no, we didn't, we didn't get a great deal of uh, feedback. 
So yeah, I mean, it was it was not not really a sort of dialogue between reader and writer. The Guardian column it was just that. But as I say, we were very surprised when and, and flattered, I suppose, when people wrote in and said, "This is an outrage! You can't, you can't stop these columns." Here is the greatest bridge writer of all time. Yes, I mean, <laughs> perfectly true. We understand that you may have been a consultant behind the scenes on TV shows or perhaps movies, dealing with the bridge situation? Well, I've made television programs about bridge, but I spent three quarters of a day um, in a television studio where they were making an episode of a program called Killing Eve. I don't know whether you've heard of it. We love it. <laughs> I tried to watch it and failed dismally to understand it, but the point was, <laughs> well, they were, I'm, I'm hopeless with, with, with cry. I can never work out who's who anybody is little lady who did various crimes and whatever. So, so it's all a mystery to me. But there's one, possibly about 30 seconds of actual dialogue was set in a bridge club. And they were filming this scene in a bridge club. And they wanted to get it right. So they got a load of bridge tables and they, they set up on the, on the set of this thing something that looked very like uh, just about any bridge club. There were a dozen tables, 40-odd extras all sitting around playing or pretending to play, and that was what they didn't want. They didn't want them sitting around pretending to play. And they wanted any rhubarbing that was going on to be sort of genuine rhubarb that, that was bridge-like. So um, I was given the task of making sure that this happened. So I was sort of sitting there trying to teach uh, the people that were going to be in the scene next to where... The actors were coming and meeting and talking to each other and so forth. So they had, at any rate, to be looking convincing. So I said, well, you know, bridges like this, there's four of you, it's 13 cards each. If you want to show a scene, you'll have 13 of them on the table like that. And you pick up one and play it. And then this guy plays this. And so I'm just explaining how it was. And these people had never played bridge. They said, well, you know, this is what and they sort of got quite into the whole business. Well, why am I doing this? What am I doing? So by the time we'd finished this, this, uh, and they had a number of times that they repeat these things and I never realized. Do you mean the number of takes? Yeah, absolutely staggering. These, 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 Sandra, oh, I think her name was. Yeah. And, 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 and an actor whose name I forget, but they, they had to come in and they start talking and they started talking about, uh, how's the game? And he diabolical, they're all useless, they're all morons. So it was a proper bridge club, we and then they had to start talking about something else. And they did that about 30 times. Mm. If something would happen, you know, um, somebody would stumble over a word or somebody would stumble over a bit of furniture or, or the rhubarb from the bridge club was too high. And they did take after take after take after take. I'm like, so is that when you abandoned your ambitions to become an actor? <laughs> I'd never had any ambitions <laughs> to become an actor, I have to say. But if I had had, this would unquestionably have killed them. I was amazed at, at how professional they all were. I mean, every time they redid it, they did it exactly the same sort of bounce and sparkle, whatever they were supposed to be showing, emotions and so forth. And I thought, Craggy, <laughs> it's taken almost a day, almost 10 hours. I mean, we had a break or whatever. Almost 10 hours to make a bit of film that's going to last 30 seconds and mean almost nothing to the vast majority of the general public because they don't know what a bridge club's like anyway. Were you behind the scenes in terms of helping them create the atmosphere of the bridge club, or did, was that already sorted? Basically, there had to be a load of tables in the background. So I just said, well, there have to be four people at the table, and they have to be holding 13 cards each, and they have to be looking as though they're thinking of doing something. 
and they've got to be these bidding boxes, these things on the table. And they took all that in, right? Okay, so, but the table where, that was actually close to where the action was taking place, that had to be playing some proper bridge or giving a facsimile of proper bridge. We actually had a couple of the people on the set who, who had played some bridge, so we wheeled those over, but this other couple, they, they didn't know anything about it, and they were terribly intrigued. They thought, is it a good game? Actually, a good game. <laughs> Join your local bridge to take some lessons, so maybe we got some converts to the game. I never saw the finished version, um, but as I say, it must have lasted 30 seconds, if that. Well, I remember it. I watched it. Okay. And I was like, this is great. This looks real. And he's a math teacher. He's uh, the Sandra O. Husband character is a math teacher in a school. And then he's a bridge teacher at the club, I guess, with his students. So it reminded me when you were talking about your math teacher at your high school, who then took you to the club. And I thought, oh, maybe, maybe you suggested that whole setup oh right no 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 the setup <laughs> i don't know why it was set at a bridge club no um but as i say they were they were keen to have somebody who and because i'd worked on other television programs in the past uh, which were about bridge events i guess you know my name was on some list of people to talk to in some television studio somewhere but i have made television programs about bridge we made a whole series for sky six episodes about an hour each and about one of the uh, world championships and of course there were big tournaments in in england uh, the sunday times ran a tournament about which we made a program and so on david what is the funniest thing that's ever happened to you in bridge i guess the funniest thing that happened to me uh, was when i made my international debut for uruguay i don't play for uruguay i've never visited uruguay but I did play a little bit of a board for Uruguay. And this happened in the Olympiad in Maastricht in, in the Netherlands in 2002, I think it was. And I was on the England team and we were playing the qualifying round robin. Eight teams to go through, I think it was, to the knockout stages or maybe 16. There was a round of 16. So... We were all split up into qualifying groups and England, who became known during that stage as England, the unexpected, because we took to the lead in our qualifying group on the first day and never lost it. And um, with one day to go, we were absolutely certain to be in the next state. So we all went off celebrating and uh, some of us more enthusiastically than others. And... The following day, we had to play a match against Germany. And then we had to play a match against Egypt, which was of particular importance, I seem to remember, to the French, because if Egypt beat us by a lot, then they might qualify instead of France. So the French were being nice to us and telling us we had to play properly. Uh, We were all drunk, so so we had no idea whether we were going to be playing properly or not. (laughs) And I was playing with my partner, Brian Callahan against a guy called Klaus Reps from Germany, and I can't remember who my right-hand opponent was. But having been rather sort of dehydrated as a result of vast alcohol consumption the previous night, we had some interminable auction, and at the end of it, I raised Kellan to five clubs, which I probably didn't have the values for, uh, and he got sharply dulled by Reps's partner. On my right, I couldn't see him. He was on the other side of the screen, but you could feel that he didn't think this was going to make. So I thought, well, that's good. At least Callan's, you know, this contract's going to be tricky and Callan's going to take a long time to play. So I can go off and get some water because I was 
very thirsty. So I trotted off and, and uh, the water fountain was a long way away. So I finally found it, got some water, came back, I sat down. There seemed to be a board in front of me. So well, maybe it didn't take as long to play as I thought. I took my cards out of the board. The tray came through the screen with one club by my partner and it went past on my right <laughs> and my left. And then I had a look at my left-hand opponent. Now, Klaus Rapps, uh, in those days, was, probably still is, a tall, very good-looking German guy. This opponent uh, either had aged 60 years, uh, put on a couple of kilos and grown a beard, or I had gone to the wrong table, <laughs> which is what had actually happened. I was now sitting in the middle of a match between Uruguay and, I think, Denmark, and I had just responded to my new Uruguayan partner's club. Well, I haven't actually responded to it yet because I hadn't got as far as responding to it before I figured out that I was in the wrong place. So we called the tournament director and came over, thought this was all jolly hilarious. And, and, um, but it turned out that, in fact, the Uruguayans were playing strong clubs. So I'd given the right explanation. <laughs> Not only had I played for Uruguay, but I hadn't made any mistakes while playing for Uruguay, <laughs> if you count being at their own table. So I went back to the right table, sat down, and Callan had finished playing four clubs, five clubs double by now, which he'd made. So I apologised for not redoubling, and we go, we got on with the match. But that was how I came to play for Uruguay. <laughs> That's very funny. Very funny. Is there a hot button issue in bridge that is particularly important to you? I mean the. Biggest issue of the last few years, as I'm sure you know, has been the the cheating that's been going on, um, not just in uh, major events, world championships, the stuff that Boy Brogland got involved with, uh, Fisher and Schwartz, Vantonian, Nunes, Bigger, Ekans, Mianoff, uh, Vladov and Elenescu, some others. But uh, among the rank and file, I suppose, is the, the phrase you'd use during the vast explosion of online bridge that took place as a result of the, of the pandemic. I'm on my country's, the equivalent of the Laws Commission, the Laws and Ethics Committee, and I'm also part of groups that investigate this problem for the Bridge Federation. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the biggest thing. It's depressing. It's frustrating because it deprives people of games of bridge, really, the extent to which it's going on. And an awful lot of people have put an awful lot of effort into trying to prevent it from happening and spoiling the, the, the fun for everybody else. I'm sure you're aware of some of the figures that have been produced. You know, it's estimated that somewhere between 5% and 10% of people playing online games are doing so illegally, and that's a shocking thing. So, yeah, that's, that's occupied plenty of my time. I mean, online bridge, in my opinion, is, is here to stay. It's a thing. And even if it doesn't necessarily mean that people are playing remotely. Nevertheless, some of the technology from online bridge is being adapted to face-to-face -face bridge. I'm sure you're aware that uh, the last US trials were played on tablets. Now, I'm all for that, and I think that's I think that's terrific. I think if we can use the technology that we have to eliminate some of the problems with unauthorized information, some of the problems with security, some of the problems with infractions penalties for them, you know, you can't revoke if you're playing electronic bridge. So the fact that the revoke penalty may not be the most equitable thing in the world suddenly doesn't matter anymore because nobody revoked. And I think that's, that's tremendous. It's not something that I'm directly personally involved with, 
unlike the cheating stuff, which which uh, does occupy my time. But yeah, unfortunately, you'd have to say that is the the biggest issue that's ever been in in, in organised bridge. Really, I mean, it's totally unprecedented. People talk about bridge and soccer or football as being like life. If that's the case, what does this say about the human condition? Well, bridge is more life-like in the sense that it's a social game. It's a game where communication between people is important. It's been said that it's a game that brings out the worst in people's characters and so forth. And to an extent, you know, you've seen behaviour that you know, would be, be out of place in a, in a war, never mind a bridge to. But because of that, because people are more invested because of the social environment in lifelike things like equity, like fairness, like moral considerations, if you like, which don't really have a place in game. I mean, soccer doesn't have an awful lot of morality attached to it, whereas bridge always seems to have. It complaints you hear, oh, this isn't fair and this isn't equitable and this isn't reasonable and this isn't all these things that you don't get in, in in other games simply because they're not meant to be fair. You 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 spend all your life dealing with, with moral issues, with fairness, with reasonable behaviour, treatment and so forth. You want to play a game to forget all of that. You want to play a game where, you know, you know what the rules are and everybody knows what the rules are and everybody plays within them. But within them, you know, you like to, legally of course, to obtain advantages. But lines get crossed far more often in bridge than they do in football, simply because everybody knows what the penalty is for, for doing things in football, soccer, whatever, and, and everybody pays it and the referee has control. But in bridge, that's, that's much less the case. So too much life spills over into bridge. In certain circumstances, I'm not saying, you know, this is the norm. I'm not saying that all, all bridge games are sort of battlegrounds. They're not. But expectations of what a game should be tend to be too high in bridge sometimes. And people, you know, they, you'll, you'll see it on the, the forums there are, bridge winners, bridge, the internet forums that there are. People really do get enormously heated about it. You know, this is criminal behavior, this is unfair, this is unjust, this is immoral, this is terrible, this is, I mean, you know, Goodwin's law invariably is, it said at some point, somebody gets accused of being out of it, but the, the the sense of proportion is kind of missing. That's that's the one thing I would say about it. I mean, not that bridges and a great game and a great relaxation and so forth. It it can be, but when it spills over, I think that's why it spills over because people are treating it too much like life and not enough like a game. David, is there a particular convention or gadget that you really love to play with your partners? No, uh, there are several that I hate. And refuse to play if I can possibly avoid it. Okay. <laughs> Tell us about those. <laughs> I've, I've, I've always been, I'm, I'm not really a system guy. I've read a lot of bidding systems. I've talked a lot about bidding systems. I've, I've developed some ideas on, on bidding, but only at a sort of detailed esoteric level. I don't invent conventions. I mean, Jacobi is fine, for example, but it can't just sit and say, we're going to play Jacobi. There's 27 different versions of it, and nobody knows what the right one to do is. The, the reason I'm uh, is that there are precisely so many different versions of things that you can't just sit and say, we're going to play, oh, I don't know, inverted minor suit raises, which I would say is not a bad convention, but you can't. I mean, okay, so what is it? Does one diamond, two diamonds deny a four card major? How am I supposed to bid over two diamonds if I have diamonds? If I don't have diamonds, it's worse if you've got clubs when you might only have two, that kind of thing. 
So you have to have a 10 minute discussion before you can play. And that's just one diamond, two diamonds. God knows what the rest of your system's going to look like. And, but you know, you, you need to sit there for an hour and a half. If you've got a list of conventions that you don't understand, something bad going to, going to happen to you. And if you've got a list of conventions you do understand, that means your partnership's been working together for a long time. My particular hate is, is support doubles, which I loathe and detest. They were invented just because Rodwell got fed up with Mextroth always having responding to a diamond in a three-card major. So if the next hand beat Rodwell didn't want to have to raise his partner to a 3-3 fit, so he could double instead, and then he could find out whether Mextroth had the suit he was bidding or not. Now, that's fine. I mean, if you play a strong club system, you get one diamond past one hard double, one hard diamond past one hard two clubs. You don't need double to show a good hand or some, because you can't have a good hand because you play a strong club. You didn't know the strong club. So because you've got this limited hand, you can play double as whatever you like. And if it keeps you out of three, three fits, that's, that's great. But some people adopted it and started running with it and say, oh, it's so important to know whether your partner got three trumps or four trumps or whether you got nine trumps or eight trumps. It's a little bit in stuff like that, but it, it's, it's less important than to, to not have total disasters all the time. I mean, some uh, they sit down, they play support doubles. Okay, you go one diamond plus one spade, two odds double plus three clubs. What's that? They haven't got a clue. They didn't know whether it could be a game try in spades or whether it could be like four spades and six clubs and the sort of rubbish that you respond to a diamond with. They didn't even know whether it was forcing or not. You can't play bridge like that. I mean, you can try, but, but it's going to come and bite you. So all I'm trying to say really is that whatever you play, there's a lot you need to discuss before you can be sort of right to put that on your convention card. This is what we play. Okay, five card pages, yeah, fine. But then again, do we open a no-trump with a five-card major and five-three-three-two in the right shape, or don't we? You know, you don't know. I don't ask you. We never find out until soon. So <laughs> there's a lot more to most of the conventions people play and say they play for. I mean, I've seen so many of them and played so many of them, and I've played most of the systems under the sun, that to say have I got a favorite is, is no. My favorite is when I can sit and bid my longest suit and then bid my next longest suit and then put the dummy down and go to the pub. That's <laughs> <laughs> the way to play bridge. Everything else is too complicated. <laughs> What's the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given? Okay, uh, yes, uh, definitely. I think, um, I'm not sure where I got this from, but it's certainly the best advice I've ever heard, and that's don't put the non-Trumps on the right. By which I mean, if you've had an auction where it's gone something like one dime, one spade, two spades, two no trumps, three no trump. Don't put the spades on the right because your partner going to forget that you're in no trump and not spades and he's going to fall foul of one of my extremely important principles, which is you cannot make three no trump on a crossroad. <laughs> if you've ever read an article about those laws of bridge, you'll see that this is the, the third of those <laughs> extremely important principles. So... I think Mary Cohen uh, alluded to it somewhere, um, but other people have, have, have mentioned it. But it was certainly, I don't remember where I heard it or whether I thought of it myself. But it, it certainly would have saved a lot of people a lot of imps over the years. <laughs> I mean, I've seen practical examples of it. And it's, it's, I mean, apart from, you know, keep concentrating and forget about the last board and all the other boring advice everybody gives you. <laughs> that one will actually save you some imps. David, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thanks so much. It was terrific to talk to you. Okay, goodbye. Thanks, both of you. That has been a lot of fun. I'll be looking out for it in the next week or so. 
And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, David Byrne. Thank you also to our friend, Larry Cohen, and to our listener supporters for making the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Paul Chirasso. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message and please consider supporting the show. These links and a link to our merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as David says, when you're laying your cards down as dummy in a no-trump contract, don't put the spades on the right because your partner might forget that you're in no-trump and not spades or whatever suit you've been bidding. And you cannot make three no-trump on a cross rough. (laughs) (laughs) No, you cannot. (laughs) Thank you, partner. Oh, thank you, partner. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.